sermon text today is Esther chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to find the second to last chapter in the book of Esther as we get near to concluding our series. Lord willing, that will conclude next Sunday. While you're finding Esther 9, we'll read in a moment verses 1 to 19. I want to ask you a question. What do you do when it seems like there's no way out of the mess? I mean, you've tried a way in a couple of other ways and a few dozen more ways. But every way you try just comes to an inevitable, proverbial dead end. What, what do you do when there doesn't seem to be a way to get out of the mess? What about when the problem's not out there, it's, it's in here? Because you tried so many ways out of the mess, and it doesn't seem like there is one. Now the heart is in a mess and hope feels lost. What do you do? Where, where do you go when it feels like hope is lost? Even when it seems as if there is no way. Even when it appears that all hope is lost. In the end, God. In the end, God. There, there is a God. In the end, God and consequently God's promises and consequently God's people will prevail. That's the meaning of Esther chapter 9. The victory belongs to the Lord. That will be our focus as we read this chapter. I trust thou become more abundantly clear as we work our way through those 19 verses that begin chapter 9, we'll see how God's Word shows us the overwhelming victory. Not partial. Not last second score. The overwhelming victory of God against all of His enemies and for the good of all of His people. Well, before we dive into that text, I thought that it would do us all a little service if we took a brief attempt to see again the background of the book of Esther and the big picture of its contents. I was struck this week at our staff meeting when we do our devotion uh, every Tuesday morning, 9 a.m., our staff meeting agenda begins with these words, devotion, five minutes. <laughs> 35 minutes later, we're trying to wrap it up because the Lord stirs our heart so much every week, but this week we were looking at the background to the book of Esther, and it became very obvious that not all of us were so together in our understanding of the background of the book of Esther and, and the basic layout of the story. So maybe it'll serve you well if I just do two things. The purpose of, the purpose of Esther and the background of Esther. So let's just do a little homework, then we'll read chapter 9. Just try to catch us all up to what's been going on before we read these magnificent verses. First, the purpose of the book of Esther. You could say very simply that Esther was written primarily to explain the background of the Feast of Purim. P-U-R-I-M. That's coming in today's chapter and then concluding in next week, chapter 10. That's why it was written. To explain to the Jews why we have this feast. It's celebrated actually by the Jews to this day. In 2019, it was on March 20th. In 2020, it will be on March 9th. The Feast of Purim still happens to this day. 
So the book is written to say why it exists and to instruct successive generations why and when to observe that same feast. ESV Study Bible says, as its content makes clear, Esther was written to explain the origin of the Feast of Purim. That's why it was written. And to ensure that it would be observed by all future generations of Jewish people. Now, it may not seem like it applies to your life at all, but you just got to hang on for a minute. From another angle, we could say concerning the purpose of Esther, not only the Feast of Purim, but kind of big picture the God of the Bible. Esther was written to powerfully demonstrate the unlimited, unrivaled sovereignty of God in human history to keep His covenant promises and to preserve His people. Esther's about God, though He's never named explicitly in the book of Esther. In Esther, the truth of God's sovereignty plays out in saving the Jewish people who lived in the Persian Empire about 500 years before Jesus was born. So we're in northern Iraq, 500 years before Jesus. That's where you're at in the book of Esther, and that's when it took place. So in that light, God's sovereignty in human history to keep His promises and to save His people, Esther exists then to remind us today that God cannot, and therefore will not, fail to keep His promises or to preserve His people. So what do you do when you can't find a way out? And what do you do when all hope seems lost? I sure hope that among other things, you lick your finger and you turn to the book of Esther and you try to get your little heart fixed on the great God of heaven again and to believe that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, we could say it this. The purpose of Esther is twofold. Give us the background of the Feast of Purim and to show us the unrivaled, promise-keeping, people-preserving God of heaven who is totally sovereign that's the purpose of the book. Well, before we read chapter 9, a little bit of background. Alright, you read left to right. So, uh, Esther is 500 years B.C. We're going to go 1,500 years B.C., 1,000 years before Esther, and say one thing. We're going to fast forward 500 years from there, 1,000 B.C., say another thing. Then we'll land in the book of Esther, and then we'll get to the end of the Bible before the sermon is over. So 1500 years B.C., that's Moses. 1000 B.C., that's King Saul. 500 B.C., that's Esther. little background, here we go. When I shared a devotion on Wednesday morning with the Treasuring Christ Together church planting lead team, which I'm a part of, when I shared a devotion with those brothers via video meeting about living a consecrated life and turning away from little sins, the little foxes that ruin the whole vineyard. I was laying an emphasis on Wednesday morning between the connection in the book of Esther of Haman, the Agagite, back to the Amalekites that show up in the time of Moses, 1500 years B.C. So I was just showing how one little sin can lead to a huge problem, so we must live a consecrated life. So I shared that brief devotion. I got a wonderful email after that devotion, which is why I'm telling you about it. Cody Pinckney, pastor Desiring God Community Church, Charlotte, North Carolina, emailed me about 30 minutes after the meeting and said these words. Wrote these words. Haman, being an Amalekite, is certainly plausible. Even an intriguing possibility. But it is a hint in the book of Esther, not a clear fact. And then here's Cody's concluding sentence. 
And we want our people to be able to distinguish between what Scripture says unequivocally and possible interpretations. And thus, we need to be careful in what we state as fact in our sermon. See, I stated as a fact Haman's connection to the Amalekites in my devotion to say we need to forsake little sins. I'm not going to give you that devotion. Cody sends me that email. I send him back a glowing response of thankfulness and deep appreciation for being connected to this network of faithful Bible men who are pastors. And I did a little more digging. 1,500, 1,000, Esther. Moses, Saul, Esther. 1500, 1500 BC. Here we go. During the time of Moses, Israel had been led out of Egypt through a miraculous intervention of God. The plagues, the tenth being the Passover, through the Red Sea. They crossed the Red Sea. All of them saved. All of Egypt who pursued them perish, including the Pharaoh. Israel then camps along the way, making their way to Sinai where they get the Ten Commandments. The place they stopped right before Mount Sinai was a valley called Rephidim. And in the valley of Rephidim, which is known, one commentator said, for being a well-watered valley. So Israel, 1500 years B.C., through the Exodus, crossed the Red Sea, camping at Rephidim. They're thirsty, so they go to Rephidim, the place that is a well-watered valley. What do they not find when they get there? Water. What do they do when they're thirsty? Complain against Moses and accuse him of bringing them out of Egypt so that they would die. It was there at Rephidim that God commanded Moses to strike the rock with his staff that he had previously struck the Nile River with. It turned to blood. Struck the Red Sea with. It parted. And now he's striking the rock with it. And water at Rephidim, Exodus 17, 6 and 7, flows out of that rock. And if you want a lifetime's worth of meditation, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament said in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the rock was Christ. Jesus satisfied His thirsty people. Well, Moses strikes that rock, and what happens next? The Amalekites show up at Rephidim and attack Israel. You may remember that narrative. I won't tell you the whole story, but Moses goes up onto a high hill as God had commanded him. And as long as Moses stood with his arms stretched wide and the staff in his hand, Israel beat the Amalekites in the battle. But when Moses' arms, old man, got tired, then the Amalekites would be Israel, so you know the story. Aaron and Hur come and put a stone under Moses. They sit him down, and one on one side, one on the other, they hold up the arms of Moses. And as the hymn writer said, when Moses stood with arms stretched wide, success was on Israel's side, but when through weariness they failed, it was then that Amalek prevailed. Israel won the battle. God said, as a result of the Amalekites attacking His people at Rephidim. Exodus 17.14 I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 17.15 The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. God wasn't happy with them. So 40 years later, we're going to end Moses' little backstory here. 40 years later, Israel's about to go into the promised land. Moses can't go with them. He had not treated God as holy in the sight of all the people, so Moses had to die before Israel could go into the promised land. 
And so God tells Moses to re-preach His law to Israel so that when they get into the promised land, they know how to honor and glorify Him like our catechism talked about this morning. And when Moses is re-preaching God's law to Israel as they're about to go into the promised land, just after he dies, Moses said, Deuteronomy 25.17, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked you among all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. He did not fear God. Fast forward. Deuteronomy 25.19 You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. God wasn't happy with those people. That's 1500 B.C. Fast forward 500 years. Israel's in the promised land. They're jealous of all the pagan nations. They don't want a theocracy. God is their king. They want a monarchy. They want a human king like all the other nations. Give us a king too, God. Give us a king too. God heard their selfish and really self-centered and pagan emulating cry. And God, in His infinite mercy, gave them a king. He gave them Saul. 1 Samuel 15.1 500 years before Esther. 500 years after Moses. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over His people over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. At 1 Samuel 15.7, So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivlah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. 1 Samuel 15.9 But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatling, the lamb, all that was good. They were not willing to destroy them utterly. 1 Samuel 15.10 Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And if you want a really challenging verse, 1 Samuel 15.32 Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. 1 Samuel 15.33 Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel did what Saul failed to do. 1,500 years, Amalek attacks Israel. 500 years before Esther, a thousand years BC, Samuel failed, uh, Saul fails to kill Agag. Consequently, Agag had children who weren't dead. And the writer of Esther tells us Haman, the Agagite. Now, it's a hint. What I need to say very clearly to you today is the author of Esther clearly wants us to say, oh, like that Agag? that Saul spared? Oh, like those Amalekites who attacked Israel that God made war against? And now when Haman's the second in command in Esther, it doesn't say explicitly he's from that Agag. There were other Agags in ancient Near East literature. But he clearly wants you to draw a connection theologically, even if you can't do it biologically, that these are the enemies of God's people. 
Well, with that in mind, Haman in the book of Esther has now been put to death. His corpse has been impaled on a gallows 75 feet high in his backyard. A new decree has been issued in the land to reverse Haman's decree to exterminate Israel, the Jews, in all the land of Persia. Mordecai's decree has gone out two months and ten days later. And the day has finally come for the Jews to make war on their enemies and for His people to be preserved. Esther chapter 9, verse 1, hear the Word of the Lord. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for dread of them had fallen on all the peoples, even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of those who were doing the king's uh, pardon me, assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Verse four. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what, was, what they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel in Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And Parshandatha, Dalphon, Ashphatha, Poratha, Adaliah, Eridatha, Parmashtha, Arisai, Eridai, and Baazatha the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall even be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then said Esther, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted for the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so. And an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. Verse 15, the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and to rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th day of the 14th month, 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of fasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas 
who live in the rural towns, make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Well, join me at the throne of grace as we ask for God's blessing to consider that portion of Scripture. Father, would You show us right now, by Your Spirit, through Your Word, Your unrivaled superiority and Your overwhelming victory, which You have wrought in Christ Jesus on behalf of Your people who have been tyrannized by sin and by other sinners. Come show us Your victory by showing us Yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three things that I want to look at concerning the victory of the Lord from Esther chapter 9, verse 1 to 19. The first is the timing of the Lord's victory. The timing, when did it happen? If you look in verse 1, you'll find out when this happened. In the twelfth month, the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. So what this means is back in chapter 3, book of Esther, Haman's edict, which was predicated on a random roll of the dice, the pur, P-U-R, the dice. Haman's roll of the pur landed on the 12th month, 13th day. A-D-A-R, Adar which corresponds to March in our calendar. Well, fast forward, when Haman is exposed through Esther's accusation of him at that second banquet, and then is subsequently impaled on a gallows that he had built for Mordecai, who he hated, Mordecai the Jew, Mordecai then rises to power, and not to re-preach and retell that whole portion of Esther, but it's absolutely critical to our understanding today's passage. Mordecai, the Jew, is now second in command. He issues a reverse edict that on the same day that Haman had chosen, that's what chapter 9, verse 1 is talking about, the Jews would actually defend themselves against any who did attack them, none of them being sanctioned any longer by the king. But the key phrase of the whole book of Esther, not just chapter 9, you could say is found in verse 1. New American Standard says it was turned to the contrary. It's a good summary of the whole book. The ESV renders it, the reverse occurred. The NIV. But now the tables were turned. What's happening is on this one day that was an ominous day designated for the extermination of the Jewish people in the entire Persian Empire from India to Ethiopia, became the day that God saved them and destroyed their enemies. On the day when the enemies of the Jews, verse 1, hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. So our first point is the timing of the Lord's victory. The very day that had been selected by wicked Haman's roll of the dice in chapter 3 to exterminate God's people throughout the Persian Empire became the day that it was turned to the contrary. When Mordecai is finally raised from sackcloth and ashes, where we find him many times in the book of Esther, under the tyranny of Haman and his wicked edict, when he's finally raised from that position to now be wearing at the end of chapter 8 robes of blue 
and a large, it says, golden crown and the king's signet ring on his finger, when Mordecai is finally in that place, we start to see very plainly that God's been working the whole time. That God has been intricately involved in all the details the whole while. That God had purposed before this generation was even born to save the Jewish people on the very same day when they thought that they would be annihilated by their enemies. I'm asking at the beginning of the sermon, what do you do when it looks like there's no hope? What do you do when you've tried every option and it seems there's no way to prevail? This reminds me of so many places in Scripture. For example, the Old Testament Joseph, the son of Jacob, back in the book of Genesis having been envied by his brothers for telling them the dream that the Lord had given him and the favoritism that his father had shown him and the multicolored tunic being given. His brothers proceeded to toss that brother of theirs, Joseph, down into a pit. You know the story. Subsequently sold into slavery. Taken down to Egypt. Those same brothers took home that multicolored tunic to their father Jacob, blood-soaked with an animal's blood passing it off as their brother's blood as evidence that their brother had died. This heartbroken father, he doesn't have any other options to try to get his son back. He doesn't have any more hope. His son's dead, so he thought. That same son though, we know the story, went not only from that pit in those slave traders' hands down to Egypt, but he eventually gets sold to a man named Potiphar, a higher up in the Egyptian political regime, only to be accused falsely of sexual misconduct by the wife of his boss. Then, that same man whose father thought he was long dead was thrown into prison for what scholars suggest, if you just do the math of his life from the data we have in Scripture, for 13 years in prison for a crime he never committed. The father's lost all hope. The son is, it appears, quickly losing it. And after long last, this same son, Joseph, in the prison, sweeping the floor, meets two people that eventually lead in a surprising way, to that same son being promoted to the vice presidency over all of Egypt as the Pharaoh's right-hand man, all because, as we get to the end of that story, we realize that God was working the whole time. God was working when the young man was in the pit. When he was sold into slavery. When he was falsely accused. 13 years in prison. God was working the whole time that nobody else could see it, especially heartbroken Jacob. His father who thought he was dead. For Joseph would ultimately encounter those very same brothers who framed his death and sold him into slavery those many years ago, all because God had purposed to raise up that brother as a Savior for his siblings and for his family so that they wouldn't perish from the famine. And a powerful summary of Joseph's entire life comes from his own lips in Genesis 50-20. Many of you have this verse memorized. Hear it fresh as if for the first time. Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, 
But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph gets it. God was working in the hard stuff to do the good stuff. And that's where we're at in Esther chapter 9. When we finally make it to the 13th day of the 12th month, God had been working the whole time, even when they couldn't see it, to do the good stuff when all they could see was the hard stuff. Some of you feel like you're waiting for verse 1 to happen concerning timing of the Lord's victory. I mean, our sermon title is The Victory is the Lord's, but some of you can nod your head and say amen to that. And I believe it to be true. I just don't experience it to be true. You're waiting for the tables to turn in your own life. You wake up wondering, when is that script going to flip in your favor? When will that relationship heal? When will the sandpaper get out from between the surfaces of your marriage or your parenting? When are the pressure those bills going to be relieved? When are those wayward kids going to warm up to your love for them and your heartbroken prayers for them? When, your mar- when is your marriage going to be led back to green pastures? When is this or that going to happen? And some of you just feel like you're waiting. Esther 7 verse 4 opens with these words, Esther to the king, we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. The problem for Esther was bigger than the fear of a bad day or a bad series of days or a bad season of life. It was the fear of death for her people. She wasn't just having a bad day. She was living under the ominous cloud of the destruction of her kinsmen. Of the termination of God's long-standing promises that He'd given to Abraham, carried out in Moses, into Israel's life. Now here we are in Esther's day. She wanted not just a better day, or a smoother ride. She wanted salvation from death for herself and for her people. The timing of the victory of the Lord, the 13th day of Adar, the very day that the enemies of the Jews thought that they would get mastery over them, verse 1 says. That reminds me not only of Old Testament Joseph, so many other passages in Scripture. It reminds me of a far more ominous day. When God totally, verse 1, turned the tables. When it was flipped to the contrary. When God dealt with what should be our greatest fear. It reminds me of Calvary. When the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, took His earthly life to the cross of Calvary, and we saw the greatest turn of the tables of all what looked like certain doom for Christ and His followers. What looked like a domino effect of execution for all 11 of His remaining disciples and anybody else who would dare to name His name. Anybody who would dare to call Him Lord, which was inscripted on a sign above His head, the King of the Jews. That event, the crucifixion of that person, became the very day, the very moment that God used to save us from our greatest fear, namely God's eternal judgment. The timing of the victory of the Lord in the book of Esther reminds me of the timing of the arrival and the redemption of my Redeemer, Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of 
time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to rescue us from the curse of the law. There is no other solution for the greatest threat on your life. It's not the big problems we all face and for which we should pray, like our marriage and our children and our money and on and on and on. Our biggest problem and our biggest threat is none other than the wrath of God. And the only solution that God has provided is the cross of Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus is God's eternal plan which He had been working the whole while. He had counseled with Himself in eternity past. He had promised in time for 2,500 years before the birth of the Savior. It is God's plan to rescue God's people from the death sentence that has been decreed against us. And to give us the feast and the celebration with our Lord forever for anyone who would trust Him alone for their salvation. The timing of the Lord's victory on the day that the enemies of the Jews thought that they would gain mastery, it was turned to the contrary. Have you met, Christ? Have you met God at the cross of Christ? Number two, Esther shows us not only the timing of the Lord's victory, but the totality of it. The total victory of the Lord. The totality of the Lord's victory. Let your eyes fall on verse 5. Then the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and did what they pleased to those who hated them. The author of Esther obviously wants us to pay special attention to the fact that the Jews gained a total victory over their adversaries. Verse 16 minces no words. The body count is 75,000 of those who hated them. The carnage in Persia causes the entire atmosphere to reek of decomp of human carcasses. 75,000 people slain in one day. More specifically, the author draws our attention to what took place not just in the entire land and 75,000 deaths, but more specifically what took place in Susa, the capital city. Where verse 6 tells us, 500 corpses of men laying in the streets of the capital city. Could you imagine having to drive around that roadblock on your way to get here this morning? 500 bodies, casualties of war on the first day of the battle. Then we're told that on the following day in that same capital city of Susa at the citadel, Esther had gained the king's approval to carry out the edict for one more day and we're told another 300 men on the second day were killed in Susa. All of them being the enemies of the Jews who hated them. That brings the body count in the capital alone to 800 men. 75,000 bodies scattered throughout the empire of Persia. What we're talking about is the totality of the Lord's victory. As the lens goes wide and you see 75,000 carcasses, and then the lens narrows to the capital city and you see 800 bodies, it gets even tighter, doesn't it? The author clearly wants us to focus on the immediate family of one man, Haman. Verses 7 and 8. Ten names are listed. I did my best to try to pronounce them for you in the reading. 
Verse 10 says, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy. All ten of them are dead. They died on the first day, but Esther had gained permission from the king to impale their bodies like their father on gallows for all the city to see. Verses 13 and 14 tells us what happens to those corpses. As I mentioned, verse 13, let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. Friends, what we're seeing in Esther chapter 9 is a real event in human history that took place about 500 years before Jesus was born that accentuates one of the most foundational truths in the entire Bible from first to last, namely, the totality of the Lord's victory. Do you see what the author's doing? As we make our way through the book of Esther, we continue reading in the Old Testament narrative, we cross the chasm of the 400 plus year intertestamental period of silence from God between the Old and the New Testament. We make our way into the pages of the New Testament. We see the birth the life, the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection of the Redeemer, His ascension into heaven, the Lord of glory, Jesus of Nazareth. We continue to read the pages of the New Testament. We make our way all the way to the end of the Bible and we find that this theme reaches its final climax. When in the book of Revelation, and we could see playing out in the pages of the New Testament prior, when all of God's enemies are finally and forever put under the feet of Christ, and all of God's people are finally and forever saved. I know it's not the most comfortable preaching, but my goal is not to make you the most comfortable. It's to make you the most happy forever. Esther 8.17 says, And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Esther 9, our chapter, verse 2, says it so powerfully. No one could stand before them for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. We're talking about the totality of the Lord's victory. We can't detect from the book of Esther if 8.17, many of them became Jews because of the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. We can't detect from Esther if it was true conversion to the God of Israel or if it was personal expediency to save their own skin motivating their alliance. Maybe they made a profession of faith, if you will, on the fear of hell alone. We don't know. But either way, it is abundantly clear. 8.17.9.2.9.3 The occupants of Persia had a palpable awareness that the formerly popular position of opposition to God's people was now a matter of, quote, great dread. Dear ones, I don't know if you've ever been gripped with holy fear. I don't know if you've ever been made to tremble because of the awareness of your sin against a thrice holy God. But I do beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I do lovingly warn you that there is a greater day of judgment than Esther 9 even hints at. The date of which, like the 12th, 13th day of the 12th month of Adar in the book of Esther, a, a, a day that has already been marked down by God, etched into His eternal decrees. The edict has already been sealed and signed in the blood 
of Christ Himself and nothing will stay God's hand from executing His judgment upon all of His enemies, which is clearly the theme of Esther 9. Every single enemy that hated them died. Nothing will stop God's hand from carrying out God's justice against God's enemies and that same hand of a merciful God Nothing will stop that same hand from rescuing all of His dear people. So won't you please, please turn to Christ today? The timing was on the day that God's enemies thought that they would prevail over God's people, but it was turned to the contrary. The totality of God's victory meant death for all those who hated Him and His people, and salvation for all who trusted Him. And what a picture of the Gospel. Third and finally, not only the timing, not only the totality, but third, the territory of the Lord's victory. The time of God's future victory is sure in Christ. Already being paid for at Calvary. The totality of that victory is a tried to emphasize is absolutely certain. Every one of God's enemies will be Condemned and every one of God's people will be saved. But third, the territory. How far? How far is the blessing stretched of the victory of the Lord in Esther chapter 9? Verse 17. This was done on the 13th day of the month, Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Who's the they? Verse 18, But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. So in verse 17, we're looking at all the Jews in all the provinces of 126 provinces of Persia, again from India to Ethiopia in our modern geography, In verse 17, we're looking at every single Jew. Young, old, male, female, boy, girl, of all ages, every one of the people of God. Verse 17. Verse 18, we're looking at those same people in the city of Susa, the capital. In verse 19, therefore the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. As I mentioned, to this day, this same feast is celebrated by the Jewish people. And we're asking, what territory is the Lord's victory reaching? This year, I mentioned that the Feast of Purim was on March 20th. I may have gotten it backwards earlier. It was March 20th, 2019. It'll be March 9th if Jesus tarries in 2020. The book of Esther tells us that all the Jews celebrated this feast in the rural areas and in the capital city on the 14th day in the rural areas because they gained the victory on the 13th so they partied the next day on the 15th day in Susa because they did two days worth of war and rested on the 15th day so it's the 14th in all the rural places it's the 15th in the city of Susa verse 22 tells us beyond our passage that the Jews made it a day of celebration and quote sending portions of food and gifts to the poor. So we see them sharing food in verse 19. We see them sending food and gifts to the poor in verse 22. 
Do you know what that represents? It shows us that not one person who belonged to the Lord was left out of the celebration due to any reason. Personal poverty was no inhibition to you being part of the party. They saw themselves as one. As the Lord saved people, they insisted that all of God's people celebrate together. It didn't matter how far away from the capital you lived. It didn't matter how poor you might have been. You're included in the celebration if you belong to the same Lord. We say it all the time around here, don't we? You must have a personal relationship with Jesus. You must. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus. But you cannot have a private relationship with Jesus. All of God's people. The book of Esther, we could go prior. The book of Esther, we could go since. All the way to today, all of God's people, and I mean to be comprehensive, all of God's people are marked by the Holy Spirit's work of making us care about all of God's people. And the territory of the Lord's victory extended as far as the people of God were found. It's a picture of the church of Jesus that we find in the New Testament loving and serving one another. The book of Acts literally selling their material possessions, giving the proceeds to help provide for the needs of one another. A.K.A. doing whatever it takes to live in joyful solidarity together. Because we belong to the same victorious Lord. That's a picture of salvation. You can't like God and hate His kids and be close to God. Get the territorial work of Christ in the right order. He doesn't conquer out there first. Man, this world sure would be a better place, God, if all those bad people would just start behaving. That's not where He works first. He's got to conquer the territory of the bigger battle the territory of your heart. And when your heart has been captured by God, when all your defenses have been broken and He owns the entire vast swath of your heart, when He reigns as King over the entire empire of your inner man, then the second territory, your love for your neighbor, those are the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Then love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what's happening in a portrait way in real human history in Esther 9. The territory of the Lord's victory went as far as His salvation had reached. And once Jesus conquers your heart, once He takes up residence in your life, once He fills you with His own love for His people, then you'll know that you're a Christian not in name only. If you don't have that, I mean, if you call yourself a Christian, but you don't have that. I mean, an others-oriented, Jesus-purchased love for the people of God, then the Bible would say you're the furthest thing from a Christian. Once Jesus conquers the territory of your heart, He expands your heart to embrace His love for His people everywhere. Well, let's close with just a brief application from the portions of the passage we didn't touch. The, the timing of the Lord's victory 
the totality of the Lord's victory and the territory of the Lord's victory are all over chapter 9. But we've got to do something with this and I offer you these brief applications. First, trust in the King whom God has raised up as our Savior and through whom God has given His people the ultimate victory. Did you see the superlative type of language in verses 3 and 4 about Mordecai? The dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. I mean, could he heap on any more praise? The author is clearly being as excessive in his verbiage as he can about the fame of Mordecai and the fear in the hearts of those who don't do allegiance to him. It is amazing to see Mordecai at the helm in Persia, wearing, as chapter 8 concludes, the robes of blue and white, writing out the decree to save the Jews, stamping it with the king's authority with the signet ring that he's wearing on his own finger. But Mordecai, in all his prestige, friends, is but a faint shadow of the true and greater Mordecai. The true and greater king The one who sits at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. The Lord Jesus Christ, whom God, like Mordecai, has raised, in Mordecai's case, from the proverbial dead, in Jesus' case, from true death, to seat Jesus on the throne. Not of some temporal earthly empire, but rather in heaven itself. And like the Jews in Persia, in Esther's day, who were saved through their risen King from the ashes, So also those who trust in the cross and resurrection of Jesus for salvation are given His victory forever. So our first application, and if you don't get number one, you can't get number two or three. Trust in the King that God has raised as our Savior. And through whom God's people have been given ultimate victory. Do you remember what all those Jews out in Persia in the far reaches of the empire were doing to plan for their salvation? on the 13th day of the 12th month? I hope you don't. Because they did nothing. They just sat out there in fear and dread that one day they would be annihilated, that their people would experience genocide. And meanwhile, God was raising up their Redeemer. And what I'm saying to you is you also have to trust outside yourself in the One that God has raised as King forevermore for the salvation of His people. Number two, this one hits more close to home in terms of the practical day-to-day it feels. Trust that every injustice will be made right. You don't have to do it all. You're not judge and jury. We find in Esther 9, trust that every injustice will be made right. This is simply what I mean. Every person who quote, hated the Jews, Esther 9, Every person who, quote, sought to do them harm got the same fate. They were all put to death. You may be living through a situation where someone has done you great harm. You may have experienced a situation even where the civil courts have been unjust and justice has not been served. Or you may be terribly vexed about a long history of injustice in our own land. You may have been sinned against. And the culprit in some 
small sin or big sin or however that may be categorized in your mind, the culprit seems to have gotten away with it. Well, as we see the character of God in the book of Esther, it teaches us that every single sin must be punished. God's character ensures that either Jesus pays for our sins or we do, but no sin will be left undealt with. We need not take our own vengeance because God will see to it that justice one day, like the 13th day of Adar in the book of Esther, will be perfectly served. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. The New Testament commands us leave room for the wrath of God. Every sin will be paid for. Every injustice will be made right. We can trust God. Third and finally, set your sights on heavenly treasure. There's a not-so-subtle theme in the book of Esther. He says the same three phrases the exact same way to land emphasis on them. And when I say set your sights on heavenly treasure, this is simply what I mean. Three times the text tells us in Esther chapter 9 that the Jews, quote, did not lay their hands on the plunder of their enemies. Do you see that? Verse 10, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 15, the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their, their lives and rid themselves of their enemies to kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The edict gave them permission to do it. But as we talked about last week, Mordecai's verbiage in his edict was a direct citation from Haman's ver verbiage in his edict. Mordecai's showing a total reversal of the curse. But the people of God, for some reason, never take advantage of the privileges of the edict to get the stuff. Kill the people, take their plunder. It was not a modern riot. There were no shops looted of the Persian enemies. The Jews were not interested in the Persians' merchandise. The reason they carried out vengeance on the 13th of Adar was because they were preserving the line of the Messiah. They had a greater treasure in view than any earthly good in the land of Persia from their enemies. The treasure they sought was more valuable than the gold of Persia. They didn't need the plunder of their enemies because they were seeking the glory of a person. The one who would be born in Bethlehem about 500 years later through the line of this preserved people who on this day had their lives spared because God was keeping His promises and sovereignly orchestrating the events of human history to bring about the birth of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So set your sights on heavenly treasure. And as we've said every week in our series on Esther, I'll leave you with it again today. Until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. Until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. Set your sights on heavenly treasure. The victory is the Lord's. Let's pray together. Oh Father, we thank You for the blessed privilege of sitting under Your Word for these few moments. And I do pray for these loved ones in front of me, and my own heart included, that we would 
Be granted by Your grace to believe that You are keeping Your promises even when we can't see it. That we would know that the victory that You have promised is certain even if our circumstances scream otherwise. That we would know that Your victory is certain because of Your character and because of what You've done in Your Son to prove it. If God did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Thank You for already doing the most difficult thing in the crucifixion of Christ so that we can know for certain You'll do anything less difficult for those who trust You. Oh, give us grace to trust You. And to continue to trust You until that final and glorious day when we see Your lovely face. We ask this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.